Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Griselda, I'm one of the arts editors here, and this episode is devoted to all things film. First, I'll be joined by two of the FT's film buffs to argue over the Oscars on Sunday. Who deserves an award? Who doesn't deserve one? And how is the Academy and Hollywood in general reacting to the Me Too moment? Later, I'll be talking to the cultural commentator Echo Eschen about Black Panther, what the comic book superhero meant to him growing up in 1970s London, and why the new movie is a cultural turning point. So I'm here in the studio with Raphael Abraham. Hey, Raph. Hello, Griselda. And India Ross. Hey, Griselda. Okay, so I'm going to take the temperature of the room quickly and ask you guys, which film do you want to win Best Film and which film do you think is actually going to win? Okay, well, the film I would like to see win is Call Me By Your Name, which unfortunately I think is a complete underdog. The most likely to win, the strong favourite, is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I agree with the Three Billboards prediction. I think it's going to run away with it. I would like Get Out to win. In the interest of balance, I would like Ladybird to win. <laughs> I think that... Came from the heart. <laughs> but I do think either Three Billboards or I think Shape of Water actually as a kind of has an outside yeah. chance of winning. It has a lot of nominations. Yeah. But let's start, Raph, with the film that you're gunning for, Call Me By Your Name. In this clip, the two central characters played by Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer are in the town square of this northern Italian, very beautiful town where they're spending the summer together. It's quite early in the film and there's a lot of sexual tension between them. I never even heard of the Battle of Piave. Battle of Piave is one of the most lethal battles in World War I. 170,000 people die. Is there anything you don't know? I know nothing, Oliver. Well, you seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What things that matter? You know what things. Why are you telling me this? Because I thought you should know. Because you thought I should know? Because I wanted you to know? Because I wanted you to know. Because I wanted you to know. Raph, you're sitting here grinning throughout that. <laughs> Enjoy that a lot, Raph. <laughs> I did. Tell us what you're smiling about. Well, <laughs> I mean, I was re being reminded of how much I love the film. You have to kind of smile at that dialogue. If you take that at face value, it sounds kind of ridiculous. But the film takes quite a long time to get to this point when, you know, 
things are slightly more coming out in the open. It's, you know, it reveals itself very subtly. And then also there's a heavy level of irony at play there. I think you can tell quite quickly that neither of these characters are necessarily particularly likable either. They're quite involved with themselves and, mm. you know... The teenage boy played by Timothy Chalamet, you know, he's very pretentious and involved with himself. And I don't think that either of them are particularly likable, which makes it much more interesting. You know, Army Hammer plays this swaggering American who comes in and sort of, you know... He's quite sort of him. crass, isn't he? He, he is, and, and incredibly cocksure and, you know, kind of faintly ridiculous. For all those reasons, I love it because it's just much more nuanced and doesn't unfold necessarily the way you expect it to which is why I don't think really it has much chance of winning. So that's not the kind of film that the Academy tends to go for. And, that, and that's the sad thing. So I think, I think it's fair to say that Call Me By Your Name is the most accomplished piece of filmmaking. It is not far off perfect. Do you mean in terms yeah. of the visuals? Yeah, in, in terms of the structure, the tone, sort of richness of it, the nuance, it's just, it's just absolutely magnificent. Yeah. Something that people have had a problem with, I mean, I think to call it a backlash is too much, but this is a gay love story and yet at the point where they're about to sort of consummate their relationship the camera draws back and we've seen Elio the character played by Timothy Chalamet have sex in a kind of dusty attic with a girl and fine we see that on camera but with the gay love scene we don't see it I didn't I have to say sort of feel that that was a problem when I saw it but when I came away it's something I've been thinking about I did read something uh, I think it was the the director Luca Guadagnino saying that he sort of consciously took a certain amount of sex and nudity out of the film I think James Ivory's earlier draft had more in it you know, I think he, he very consciously didn't want this to be a gay movie. That's what you've hit upon as well. Is it's like radical break for me is that it's not like a gaze against the world story. Like it exists in this perfect kind of vacuum mm. and there is no like external threat because everything that we see in terms of gay storylines has always been like framed through the conflict. oppressor yeah. and conflict yeah. and struggle. And it's like you never get to see the kind of beauty of these relationships. I think that it shares that strength with Moonlight last year, yes, which was, exactly. you know, that was yeah. the, the strength of that. that exactly. was, it wasn't this film about the black experience standing in contrast to the you know the, the white man and it, exactly. it was allowed it to sort of exist terms. on its own terms and, and, and it yeah. took me a long time watching that film to realize oh there aren't actually any white people in right. this right I think yeah that's it's why not these... one thing to find against another exactly. and these movies that's why these movies are so strikingly beautiful you're just able to like see it for what it is without this like frame of reference of oppression and it's yeah. they just become so extraordinary through that but you look at the other films nominated and the mostly they are about sort of triumph over adversity or right, you know taking exactly. on the man well let's you know. let's move on to get out i don't think triumph over is a, a Adversity is what that's about. <laughs> no, but this is a no. very clever, very complicated so, film. So, like Raph, I loved Call Me By Your Name and slightly for the purposes of argument, I've chosen Get Out, but I think they're kind of equally my favourites. But in contrast to Call Me By Your Name, Get Out, as I say, a kind of an imperfect piece of filmmaking. I think it has flaws as a like work of art, but as a like thing at this political moment, it is such an extraordinary idea. Let's listen to a clip from Get Out, which I think illustrates some of the stuff that you're talking about. So just to set up the premise of the film, Chris, played by Daniel Kaluuya, has gone for the weekend to his white girlfriend's sort of country house, I think sort of upstate New York. This is very upper middle class American. He's in this clip at a party and he starts talking to... The only other black guest there, played by Lakeith Stanfield, and this is their exchange. Good to see another brother around here. <sighs> yes, of course it is. <laughs> Something wrong? There you are. <laughs> Do something with this. <sighs> yes, yes. Oh, hello. I'm Philomena, and uh, and you are. Chris. 
Rose's boyfriend. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here. That's nice. Um, Logan, I, I hate to tear you away, dear, but the Wincots were asking about you. <sighs> well, it was nice to meet you, Chris. Okay, so indeed you're laughing as well. And that is <laughs> quite a funny it. clip. And the, the music alone is, is it's amazing. It's so creepy. So the conceit <laughs> of Get Out is that it extrapolates this idea of white microaggression into like full-blown horror. And it's worth kind of bearing in mind that Jordan Peele, who directed it, is not a filmmaker who made a social satire. He's a satirist who in this on this occasion used film as the mode of telling these stories. And he basically like created a genre which he calls social horror. Or on Twitter, he joked that it was a documentary. The idea is just to turn these like narratives that black people have been experiencing for so long into this extraordinarily horrifying experience. The reason I want to see it win is just because it would be such an unbelievable coup for like the overwhelmingly like white academy. It'll never basically it'll never happen. I'll preface this by saying, but like it would be just such a spectacle. Like it's like the next step from Moonlight. Like we talked about Moonlight being a black movie in the absence of whiteness. This is the like next step, which is to to posit whiteness as the villain, almost an anti-white movie, which is, it's an extraordinary thing that it's even featured in the Academy Awards. It's also like just a thing. very original sort of mixture of, like you say, a kind of horror spoof. It has a real yeah. spoofy feel about it mm. as a way of talking about race and racial politics right. and the idea of cultural appropriation and sort of like taking things from one yeah. race to another. But I think of all the movies in this list, Get Out is the one that people will be talking about, not just in terms of movies, but in terms of the culture. I think it was like a totally like paradigm shifting, like work of commentary. People are like, wow, this is like Get Out. It made me think mm. about my own behavior. And I think it made a lot of people think. Of all the films up for best picture, I think it's by far the most conceptually interesting film, you know, and it's yeah. the most original and sly and ingenious and mm. clever. I absolutely loved it for about three quarters of the film right, yeah. and this is the, my, yeah. my only problem is because as a horror film in, in its many things but um, the mode it adopts is horror mm. it just for me it doesn't come together it just towards the end it becomes a bit silly and people get bonked on the head and you know there's a sort of oh, I kind of love that so, the, the more the bodies were piling up the more I loved it I just thought this is out of control well I thought it was out of control but in another <laughs> way I think you know it was so clever and I really wanted it to have this brilliant clever ending where it all was pulled together yeah. And it just, as a kind of a horror fan, mm. I just thought, oh no, it's kind of degenerating into this kind of slightly second-rate horror. But yeah. maybe you know it was what? almost that supposed to be like a B movie. It had that slightly trashy edge to it. Yeah, I feel but like that's it didn't a bit work of for an you. excuse. <laughs> 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 Having said that, I can't argue with anything India said either. You know, it, it will be talked about. It's already talked about. It does it, make you question all sorts of horrendous things to make you sort of have nightmares of white liberal guilt. It's <laughs> it's an unbelievable achievement, and, and Jordan Peele has said that he's going to continue along this vein of making more movies that are oh, quote good. unquote yeah. social horrors not yeah. necessarily with respect to race but whatever else he's going to come up with and I think it's just it's an amazing concept and it really works it works yeah. so well yeah. yeah okay so three billboards the film both of you think is likely to win it has already won the Golden Globe and, and various other things we have a clip from three billboards as well in this clip, the Woody Harrelson character, he's a police chief, is asking a sort of junior officer, a guy called Dixon, played by Sam Rockwell, whether he has the file on the Angela Hayes murder. Angela Hayes was a teenager who was raped and murdered, and her mother, Mildred, played by Frances McDormand, is looking for justice. Stop reading comic books and get me the file on the Hayes case. Uh, Angela Hayes case or the Mildred Hayes case? There is no Mildred Hayes case. We've had two official complaints about those billboards, so actually... From who? 
It's a lady with a funny eye and a fat dentist. Give me the file on the Angela Hayes case. A lady with a funny eye? Jesus Christ. Okay, so <laughs> three billboards. It's done pretty well already, but it also has sort of had a certain amount of controversy and naysayers. What, what do you guys think, Raf? I think I'm thoroughly fed up with endless backlashes against every film that comes along. That's what <laughs> I think. It, it, this does feel a little bit familiar, doesn't it? This cycle of, <sighs> of backlash. It, it's exhausting. I've got backlash fatigue. Oh, I'm completely on, over it. Every year now, every awards, every festival, we're now going to have to have the film that's built up and then we're going to have to have the backlash and then the counter backlash. No, and... don't be such a reactionary. <laughs> this is how we move forward. These Maybe we should explain important. what the backlash is exactly. So... So the film seems to be kind of right on. It's dealing with a lot of now feel very topical issues about rape, small town America. This is the kind of place that you feel may have voted for Trump. There's racial prejudice in there. There's there's sort of hodgepodge of lots of things. The backlash has mostly been around the character that we heard in that clip, the Sam Rockwell character, who goes on this kind of narrative arc of redemption. He's a racist cop. He goes around doing things like throwing people out of windows. It's a thoroughly nasty guy. But the film seems, people have argued, to be wanting us to sort of feel affectionately towards him. That is problematic, and that was my problem with the film. So I, I saw it at the Venice Film Festival back in September. So it wasn't part of the backlash. I was, I guess, I was the lash. But it was. Um, <laughs> I wasn't. The I wasn't. Lash. I wasn't that. Oh, yeah, I wasn't that that crazy about it myself. Kind of for those reasons, because it sets up this this whole story of Frances McDormand, you know, looking for justice for her, you know, the rape and murder of her daughter, which is kind of horrendous. And this whole sideshow going on with <laughs> with Sam Rockwell and these other characters, where you know, race is studying, and and he's this heavy boozing belligerent bigot of a character and goes on the warpath and yet somehow he's redeemed and you know these things sit for me quite uncomfortably people together. don't quite earn their redemption it feels yeah, he, it's, it's sort of Ro- slightly lazy my problem is not that it, it deals with these issues in a problematic way it's just that the film is so totally opportunistic and it's just tacking these things onto itself to like advertise its wokeness and to sort of claim that it's like a challenging film when mm. in fact it's like totally unchallenging. It's really just like a completely banal story of this woman on this journey for justice with these absurd added on like social commentaries that make no sense in the scheme of the story. It's just so like tokenistic and like calculated. Something that I think is quite divisive about it is the humour. It's, it's supposedly this kind of black humour which is purposefully being sort of un-PC and pushing all the right Mm -hmm. buttons. And even in the cinema, when I saw it, it felt like a sort of a quarter of the audience quite sort of spread out were laughing, like laughs would suddenly Mm -hmm. come from different places around the room. I didn't find it that funny, but obviously it hit the right notes for some people. I think, well, I think Martin McDonough's, you know, he's a really good writer. I do think he writes very funny lines, but the thing is, it's so written. Frances McDormand is this incredibly sort of acerbic woman who, you know, cuts everyone down. And I think she's great. I think her but performance is her brilliant. Performance. It, it is she brilliant. carries yeah. it. She she's does. She totally does. It. But then everyone speaks with these zingers and has these one line, you know, it yep. doesn't matter who they are. I mean, even though they're sort of supposed to be the village idiot. So it's still have I a can funny just, quip. But I, yeah. don't, I don't agree. I don't think he's as a funny writer. I don't think what they're saying is funny. The humour is like totally anachronistic. It's this really like bro-ish 20 years ago humour. The irony being that this is supposedly some kind of feminist narrative and it's like no, I'm not these buying that. guys joking about, you know, 
the dwarf played by Peter Dinklage is like he exists purely to be like a punchline. Yeah, I mean, it's like that, those, the dwarf jokes just got really tired as well. Like, I mean, not not funny. They use the N word in that film, right? And it's just gratuitous, and it's like you don't get to do that, and it's just really, really problematic. So, just, why is this film the strong favourite for the Oscar for these very reasons? Imagine you're an Academy voter right now, right? So yeah. you're the average Academy voter. You're a middle-aged white guy let's be honest yeah. with what is proven to be pretty conservative taste in art but in this moment more than any previous year you must make a politically yeah. conscious you choice have to you prove must yourself. you have to you, prove your you wokeness have, just yeah. like this film you have yeah. to you have to signal yourself to be woke this film satisfies both those things because it appears challenging, yeah. but in fact it isn't. And you, I, I think that's the case with both the front runners. I think that's the same story with exactly, the shape of exactly. water. Exactly, the shape of water. That's, again, the you shape know, of water is got, something that appears to be bigger than it is. Yeah, you've got a you know disabled woman lead. You've got her best friend who she teams up with, who's a gay man. Right. There's even she has a, a black colleague at work. A black colleague at work, an eight-foot amphibious lover. You know, but and you can't get more outside of them. Right. That. But the difference between these two films is that I think the shape of water is like an honest film. I don't believe that Guillermo del Toro went out and was like, okay, I'm going to make an interspecies romance for this identity politics era. I think he just is in love with fantasy. I don't think it's a great movie. It doesn't I think feel it's a cynical pretty pedestrian. In the same it's not way. cynical. No, it's like much more straightforward. Everything about three billboards is calculated. Even, I reckon, the billboards, I think that is consciously geared to be in the hope that people would make memes of it. I really <laughs> think that. Like, it's which so, has happened. Which actually. has happened. It's, I was thinking it's very sort of handy for an Oscar campaign as well. Exactly. It like, yeah. takes a lot of billboards to sell a, a, <laughs> right. a movie to the Academy, doesn't yeah. it? So. But let's let's move on to talk about Shape of Water, which we, you know, it's, it's a good comparison because yeah. these are the two supposed front runners. Yeah. We have a clip again. Actually, this is quite a funny clip because uh, it has no talking. Sally Hawkins, who plays Eliza, the main character of the film, can't speak. Her performance is extraordinary considering she does it all really with her face and with a bit of sign language. So although we can't see any of this, in this clip... Eliza has lost the creature who she's liberated from the lab and she's fallen in love with. He's wandered off down the street. He's gone to the cinema underneath her apartment and he's standing in front of the huge screen, completely entranced by the film. Okay, so <laughs> there's some music nice from the shape music. of water. No, I think that's quite addictive because I, one thing I was going to say about another reason I think this movie is a good contender is that it's a very old-fashioned movie. Well, it's a sort of love letter it's to old-fashioned cinema, an, yeah. isn't it? Well, what it is is it's an old B movie. I mean, you know, yeah. sort of. 40, 50 years ago, this would it's have got been. the slimy monster. Yeah, it's it's got the weird it, love story. It's interesting that B movie, you know, yesterday's B movies have become today's A movies, right. but with more contemporary thematic things stirred in. I mean, I liked That's it. True. Don't get me That's wrong, true. I enjoyed yeah. it as a sort of fantasy movie. But for me, it felt like a, a bit of a retread of things like ET. Yep. You know, with an Amelie-ish character played by Sally Hawkins, it was very and, um, very slightly young. twee. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's lovely, but it, it's 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 not deep. You know, yeah. and go and see it because it's pretty, and it should win things like yeah. art direction. But well, I, exactly, I don't it's know what, yeah. what, what it's doing in the Oscars race. I'm not sure, but it's interesting that you know that the lineup is kind of interesting and more diverse than it used to be. This is essentially a good lineup, would we say? In comparison I think it's to really it's strong. It's a much strong more interesting year for the mix. Yeah. Than, the, re- than the reason it's interesting is the absence of prestige pictures, right? 
Well, well yeah, I mean, there's, there's Dunkirk in there, there's Darkest Hour. Dunkirk's an interesting Dunkirk's one. A re- Dunkirk's really interesting. Because it's, I think it's probably the most cinematic I agree. of the films. I agree. Even more so than Call Me By Your Name. It's and a story think... that attempts to tell this story visually. Mm. Yes. Whereas, I think it's a very forward-looking movie. Whereas, I think you it's know, quite radical. If it's been kind of lined up with Darkest Hour, which I've finally the subject matters. Yeah, because of the subject matter. I mean, there's films. a lot of overlap. Yeah. Yeah. But my God, they couldn't be more different. Right. You know, Darkest yeah. Hour is all sort of gloomy interiors and dialogue and... I just don't want to watch that. Yeah, no, well, (laughs) I should probably have watched it in preparation for this, but I I didn't. You're better off going off and just listening to old recordings of Churchill, which (laughs) much more stirring. (laughs) The real thing. Okay, so now I want to tell you guys why I am gunning for Lady Bird. Oh yeah. So yeah, Greta Gerwig. This is the first film she's directed, although she has, of course, co-written and starred in lots of films with Noah Baumbach. It feels a bit different from those films, though. For a start, it feels much more female. The, the main character, played by Saoirse Ronan, is a teenager in Sacramento in California, a sort of unfashionable part of the state, going to school, doing what you do when you're a teenager in 2002. She has this very fiery relationship with her mother, which feels incredibly sharply observed and very poignant. I mean, sort of struck a nerve for me and a, a lot of women, yeah. I think. It feels like <laughs> a recognisable... <laughs> portrait of a mother-daughter relationship and actually one that we don't see on screen very much. I do have another clip here. I don't think it needs much introduction. Um, they're in the car and they're arguing. I want to go where culture is, but like New York, or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, really, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the, or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Lady Bird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Lady Bird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you can see... Sorry, you can hear the writing in there and, and how funny it is and I do think Greta Gerwig has a real ear for how people speak and how people fight in this film particularly mm. I think it spoke particularly for me kind of a in a non-critical way I, I recognized that I was a girl of a similar age in 2002 you know I did the bad hair dye all of that stuff the kind of bad relationships I had a perm actually. Wow. <laughs> wow. It, it was a great look. <laughs> but you know, all of those, that attention to detail, that there was something that was so recognisable for me about that period. I mean, down to like the Catholicism, it was all there. I felt like this film was made for me to watch it in a slightly creepy way, actually. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that close to home. I mean, you know, I didn't grow up in California. Edinburgh is slightly different, but it was that same sense of, you know, she says, I want to go where culture is. It's that sense that you're living yeah. in a backwater and you want to get out. And look at you now. <laughs> yeah. I am I where culture is. <laughs> what Did you guys like this film? I really liked it. Basically, the thing about watching a Greta Gerwig movie is that we know her so well as an actress I think we think we know her and also like everyone is in love with Grass Gerwig and she's I think she's sort of indie darling she's just everyone's darling she's she's the like girl next door and it's just like I went into this with extraordinarily high expectations and I think I expected too much of her given that it's her first film I thought it was a really good movie but I think it's it's a bit like unrefined I think it doesn't quite know what it is for example I think it's like sold to us as a coming of age story but really as you said the thing that's interesting in there is the mother-daughter relationship mm. I think it's structurally like a little bit off some of the jokes land some of the jokes don't land it's sort of baggy in the middle like, it's baggy I, I do exactly. agree with that yeah. I think that's actually kind of what I like most about it it is a bit you know freewheeling and it yeah. is a bit less than perfectly formed but I think 
I do think part of that's intentional in a way. Sure. It seems to build to these moments of confrontation and whatnot between the mother and daughter and, and certain other characters. And, and then she'll cut away from it and she'll sort of downplay these what seem to be building towards these big dramatic moments and then play up quite small moments like yeah. mother and daughter going shopping. Yeah. There's something about this stuff. true to real life experience about that. It is just sort of one yeah. incident one day after well, it made another. Me, it made me think of, of how you remember things. You know, mm. So when you look back on your life, you, you remember these really random, pointless little moments and you just want why am I remembering that? And then big moments in your life. You or huge can't... arguments. You forget what yeah. the argument what was, was about. What was that all about? Even. Exactly. Yeah, but aren't you making excuses for it in the way that we were making excuses for Get Out becoming ridiculous by the end? Quite possibly. But I think this is much more sort of of a piece. So it has that that approach and that tone from some, some, from start to end. I, I think the question for me is, is this movie better than the 20 other Sundance-style coming-of-age stories that I've seen previously mm. that tread very much the same territory? And I think at moments... Yes, it absolutely is better. But at moments, I was like, I don't know, this is just kind of the same. For I me, think it's it has just flashes like, of brilliance. I fla- think, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the clip that we heard is is kind of one of them. But yeah. not every scene is quite. I think it's one of those films that's a bit of a victim of its own hype. That it's yes, been built up yeah. because of the year we're in. There had to be a film made by a woman in there. So it was, you know, an easy choice. And it, as good as it is, I'm not sure it quite stands up totally. to some and of the competition. I'm eager to see Greta's second, third, fourth films yeah. when she's a more accomplished filmmaker. and the one that we haven't yet talked about is Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson. Let's listen to a clip from that as well. It, of course, stars Daniel Day-Lewis, apparently his farewell on the screen. He plays Reynolds Woodcock, a high-end designer and dressmaker. Here he's talking to his sort of would-be muse, Alma, played by Vicky Kripes. Cyril is right. Cyril is always right. It's not because the fabric is adored by the clients that Cyril is right. It's right because it's right. Because it's beautiful. Maybe one day you'll change your taste, Alma. Maybe not. Maybe you have no taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Yes, just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop. So, India, you recently interviewed Paul Thomas Anderson for the FT magazine. What did you think of the film? Were you, are you a fan? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've seen this movie three times. I still can't decide whether I like it. It's such a strange movie. I, it's extraordinarily beautiful. It's certainly intriguing. It's certainly like nothing I've ever seen before. Raph and I, we saw it in the cinema yeah, together yeah, and we came out time. and we said, yeah. that was rubbish. Or we said it was I, I think I probably flawed. was the least down on it. Yeah. But I we haven't... could see major... So what, what, did you, what were the flaws that you saw in it? Their relationship was just so troubling and preposterous. Also, the structure of the movie was so strange. It really, like, uh, without giving away any spoilers, it, it starts out as this kind of pretty standard issue period romance and escalates into this get out style manic ending and i like it but it's so hard to understand what this movie is trying to say if anything mm-hmm. anderson's career has been he's always been this like chronicler of america and america has been his muse for so long and it's so strange to see him step outside of that. His version of England is so is so silly and so cartoonish. Oh, I quite liked his version of England. I, I, felt, I, I found it, it believable. I mean, it's a, it's a period piece, but it... 
all the textures felt quite right and the light and the yes mm-hmm. yes it's a beautifully crafted it's film beautiful and it's fantastically film. acting i mean you're listening to that again just yeah. now oh God, yeah. daniel day lewis is just you know he's so immersed in that character it's, oh, it's, it's, it's almost frightening yeah. again a bit like with my complaint about get out probably more so with this i was totally with it and i was utterly absorbed by its beauty and and this strange relationship and this strange man and then it just takes this sharp left turn i just could not swallow what happens towards the end of the film and its whole ending i mean we we don't we don't i know i don't want to spoil it but but there is there is a major turn into a different type of film doesn't it it totally turns itself on its head apparently i've heard from people who've watched it a second time india might be able to bear this out it makes more sense the second time around i do want to go and see it again i will say that i actually saw it for the first time last night so it feels it feels quite quite fresh and i did think it was interesting in this you know it starts off like you say in this quite conventional period costume drama romance then it's sort of this artist muse relationship yeah you know he's been going through a cycle of women who are just pretty disposable and alma is is not going to be disposed of she's really Mm -hmm. sticking with him that changes things she has a kind of power that these other women didn't have but does that feel in keeping with the rest of the film or does it feel like just a very contrived twist i found it uncomfortable to watch certainly and i do think it's it's quite unromantic in the sense that it's a real power struggle. Yeah, I mean, it's so different yeah, to Call yeah, Me By Your Name, but, which feels kind of beautiful and easy. This was like about dominance and submission yeah. and like marriage yeah. as a kind of battle. I think is it had really lots to say. Is? I think it almost maybe had so much to say. I, I feel like I definitely need to go back and see it but In any way again. that's believable? So we don't want to spoil no, anything, but I think it can be read maybe metaphorically. I think it is about a kind of battle of wills and a sort of... You know, the compromise of the perfectionistic workaholic having to, you know, accommodate a relationship into his life. The woman who wants things to be exactly as she wants them having to compromise with this very difficult man. And it felt like these two very stubborn people kind of coming together mm. and clashing. And I felt like, to me, that was totally believable. Well, in that case, I The think plot like, devices are potentially quite fantastical. But yeah. yeah, in that case, I think like Daniel Day-Lewis is the dress, the beautiful dress that he makes. <laughs> it's all a little bit too sort of carefully contrived and confected for my taste. I don't I, think it's going to win anyway. I think it's, 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 much, I think it's, it's too weird. It's yeah. Mm. yeah. So, yeah. So the ceremony itself... You know, we've had Oscar So White. We've had more recently Me Too. The Oscars is sort of coming into this. The Academy is coming into this at quite a difficult point and it sort of needs to prove itself in a way. You know, is there a sense that we're still interested in, in the Oscars as a ceremony and as, as an event? I think in some ways we're more interested, yeah. we speaking broadly, yeah. I think are more interested than ever before. I think people are talking about the Oscars much more, yeah. much more interested in the last few years than pff, I can remember. The choices feel more important in a way. Yeah, but I mean, I think in a way they're talking less about the movies themselves yeah. and more about, you know, all the politics and the controversies. It's always had this like outsized importance of being this thing that sort of represents how like the culture sees itself, which is absurd because it's how 6,000 people see movies. Like that's not a like mm. fair thing to say, mm. but somehow it's come to occupy this position. And I think when that met like Twitter, it just has like taken off. It's just like this natural meme generating machine. It generates content and like when the oscars met identity politics it's like this like perfect storm of cultural criticism and it's like what more could you like want from an event that's got celebrity pop culture identity all these things not to like 
trivialize the very real issues that it's facing but you can but see I how think, it's like they a are like package for social media yeah it's it, it's it's just a spectator sport and all of these political issues coming under the like umbrella of the oscars just only adds to the like number of reasons we should be interested in it i think it's difficult for the oscars themselves because like the kind of twitter like industrial complex the thing that's been like generating free publicity for the oscars for the past five years it's kind of great for them in like you said we talk about the oscars more than ever but it's also difficult because that's the same thing that also is scrutinising the Oscars more than ever and exposing what's wrong with them. At what point does bad publicity just become like bad? And it's interesting that recently there's been some interviews like this week with the producers of the actual show who are saying words to the effect of, God, we hope the politics doesn't overshadow the event. You know, we're hoping people, are, not everyone's going to mention Time's Up in their speech and they are like kind of over it. And How they're, can like, they not though? This is the trouble. Right, I mean, so, now we're going to have this spectacle where presumably everyone who gets up on that stage now has to, you know, make very clear and very obvious how incredibly right on and woke they are. I think I'm. I feel very. Raf's over it. Raf's woke fatigue. I just I, <laughs> strikes again. <laughs> I don't want to have to watch this this nauseating display of self congratulation mixed now with self flagellation. So exactly, everyone it's, it's who gets kind of on, isn't it? on the stage has to sort of point out how horrified, how much they now hate Weinstein. I think this is why Three Billboards is the ideal winner. It is the same as the Oscars. It, yeah. is, it is a thing that exists to like signal virtue in yeah. like a totally shallow way. It is the it's perfect the, it's, Oscar it's, movie. It's, but yeah, having said all that, it, do, it it does still matter who wins the Oscars. Doesn't oh, it, it? matters. I mean, I feel I do feel cynically office. about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mean, but also just win. visibility and everything. I mean, things that win generate their own well, momentum and power and totally. change the landscape. Okay, well, but imagine this hypothetical: Would you would you prefer it if the Oscars genuinely rewarded the best movies of the year, like an obscure like a film like The Square that won the Palme d'Or? Mm. Would you like that to win the Oscars? It might do. It's up for best foreign, right. foreign language film. It I, will I never represent. I don't the best want the Oscars to really tell me the best. So it depends films. what you want it to that. be. I want the Oscars to be a spectacle. I think the problem is though when people treat it not just as kind of red carpet and actually they see it as like this is the best film yeah. officially. No, I think it's that's how it, I do think that's how it's widely perceived. You know, I yeah, don't. I don't think that's going to change. I think it's. But I think it's more. I think it's more representing a better selection of the best films of the year now. I think Moonlight winning last year. I do think that was maybe a bit of a freak because I think it was genuinely. It was one the best of the best film. films yeah, of the year, yeah. and you know the fact that it won. I do think was partly because of the academy trying to make amends. But thank God it but was such a, a fantastic film. I mean, it was just. Yeah, exactly. I, it was. It, I still can't believe that it won it's like extraordinary like everything about that movie suggested like not best picture but i think three billboards winning this year if it does will not represent the same triumph as great (laughs) absolutely great film it hasn't happened yet no you know no we get out could still get out one but in the the year of me too shouldn't it be ladybird perhaps you know shouldn't it be i've picked that as my choice (laughs) then obviously i would like ladybird to win but i'd be equally happy if get out one or call me by your name i you know i think We've picked three good ones from a very strong list. So so now we're into self-congratulation as much as the Academy. <laughs> well done, us. In the spirit of the Oscars. <laughs> okay, well, on that note, we're going to leave it there. So we'll all be watching on Sunday. India, I'll be following your Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> Look out for those hot takes. <laughs> So next up is a film that will undoubtedly be nominated for next year's Oscars. It wasn't eligible this year as it's only just come out. Black Panther. It was, of course, directed by Ryan Coogler, who is only 31, amazingly and rather depressingly. 
and it stars Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, otherwise known as the Black Panther. He returns home to the kingdom of Wakanda, which is this amazing African country that has never been colonised or really had much interaction with the outside world. They had this amazing natural resource there, vibranium, which they worry that if the rest of the world knew about, they would all want to exploit. And this is, of course, a metaphor for the colonisation and exploitation of mineral-rich African countries. So it poses these interesting questions, as well as about colonisation and racism and prejudice, but also about isolationism versus intervention. I'm going to talk to the writer Echo Eschen about the film. He wrote a very interesting and very personal piece about Black Panther for us recently. Echo, thank you so much for coming back into the podcast. No, it's okay. It's a pleasure. First Basquiat, now Black Panther. So I went to see the film last night and I'm very excited to talk to you about it. But Mm. before we jump into the kind of Marvel universe, I wanted to go back and ask you about the comic book. And you wrote this brilliant piece, uh, an essay for the FT a couple of weekends ago, which was about your relationship to the comic book. Can you tell me why it was important to you? Yeah, well, I mean, when I was a kid, I read a lot of comics as a kid. And comics served a couple of purposes for me. I was born in Britain end of the 60s I grew up in the 70s in Britain my parents come from Ghana 70s Britain it's a strange place it's kind of strange, strange <laughs> I wasn't stuff. around there no, but, yeah. but it's strangely slightly alarming place 70s Britain was a fairly overtly racist place you had kind of racist chants on the terraces you had racist comics on TV you had a situation where Margaret Thatcher talked about how she worried that British people would feel swamped by immigrants, you had this kind of quite hostile environment if you're a person of colour. As a child, trying to understand what that meant, I found some way to understand myself through comics. Comics were an escape, but also they were also a way of understanding that as a person of colour, as a black person, the world was complicated and slightly malign, but at the same time, difference, which was the kind of raison d'etre of a superior, superior is always different, difference could also provide its own specialness. I took that as a sort of guiding metaphor, which is to say that for me, being black, which was a thing that was kind of uh, sort of vilified in kind of mainstream society, could also be a position, a place, an identity of specialness. Blackness could also be its own superpower, because for me, it allowed me to see the world on a couple of different levels. It allowed me to see the world as it was, but also allowed me to see the world metaphorically. I could read the world through comics. I could understand that difference, isolation, alienation, were otherness were also things that could make you special. Were also ways of being able to see and experience the world, however difficult they were, gave you a privileged way of understanding some of the nuances, some of the things that didn't go said. I mean, that's a sort of meta way yeah, of describing yeah, it. Yeah. But So it's sort of difference as a superpower. Yes. You know, and every single comic, Black Panther or otherwise, was, is kind of based on that. You can read the X-Men, you can read Spider-Man. It's always this sense that actually a superpower comes with sets of responsibilities, sets of obligations, burdens And things that set well. you apart from yes. the norm in Exactly. That's how I read comics. They were inspiring to me. Black Panther was one of those comics. Interestingly, Black Panther wasn't actually the greatest comic <laughs> in the 70s because for a couple of days, what you know, Black Panther as a character is invented in the 60s. He's the first black superhero in sort of any comic, you know, he's invented by Marvel. 
And so he's kind of really interesting, resonant character. Also, you know, the first superhero to come from Africa. So that becomes really interesting. But there were some drawbacks when the Black Panther came out. Certainly when I discovered him, he had this solo series and the series was called Jungle Action. Just okay. wasn't a good mm, look. Yeah, no. You know, in a way that spoke to the fact that Marvel Comics almost entirely, you know, run by white writers and illustrators and so on. So you have this black character who's written by white scripters. It's not necessarily a problem because some of them could write really interesting and uh, nuanced it, stories. it is very different to the Ta-Nehisi Coates exactly. version of the Black Panther. Exactly. But now we're in an entirely different phase where mm-hmm. Black Panther, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, one of the most astute commentators on race and identity in America, not mm-hmm. known as a comic book writer in the slightest, known for quite serious kind of long form articles, is now writing the Black Panther and has turned the Black Panther into a figure who speaks of politics, speaks of historical memory, speaks of race, identity, place, social change, colonialism, imperialism. He does all of these things within the format of a comic book. So the Black Panther has become a really interesting character. It always had the potential to be that, but in recent years, I think has realised that potential in really quite sophisticated ways. As someone who read comic books like back then, and looked at them as a sophisticated medium. It's a sort of, it's been a really interesting arc now to go back and see, actually, look, some of the things that I kind of imagined or chose to infer or read as metaphor are now delivered explicitly through a comic book. And that's true of the film as well. I mean, I, as I said, I saw it last night, so my head is sort of full with it. Yeah. But I was surprised how political it is. It's quite daring in that sense. It is radical, I think. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the radicalism extends through a number of different things. As you say, you know, it's a film about historical memory. It's a film about imperialism. It's a film about racism, really, is the main enemy Mm. in the story. You know, it's got a very sympathetic kind of bad guy who's promulgating an idea of African black radicalism as a way of reasserting the position of black people as a non-oppressed people you know yeah it's very morally complex because the bad yeah. guy is not evil is not no. a bad guy and is actually no. incredibly sympathetic you yeah know, the bad guy is actually more idealistic incarceration about poverty yeah. about wanting to kind of triumph over white oppression which is what's Spo- bad about that spoiler alert the most beautiful closing line <laughs> since the end of blade runner <laughs> since Roy <laughs> Batty we, we died in blade it. runner <laughs> the most a really sort of striking stirring beautiful end scene to that character as a sort of bad guy very very sympathetic because there's a larger set of issues going on but the genius black panther really is its setting you know it's the first marvel superhero movie actually one of the few mainstream big budget movies set in africa as we know mostly black cast kind of stellar cast but the genius is wakanda the genius is the home country Mm. And it's Black beautifully realised in this. Video. So there's this idea that the Black Panther's home country, Wakanda, is the only country in Africa that's never been colonised. Mm. It's never been under the yoke of imperialism. Also happens to be the most technologically sophisticated country in the world. And the film manages to conjure this with depth and lightness simultaneously. So Wakanda's a place you want to be. Some moments that don't entirely work walking through downtown Wakanda I wasn't necessarily convinced by you know the sort of array of hats and kind of Mm, colourful clothes mm. in the background but it's quite an interesting sort of imagination it's a what if yes what if colonisation hadn't happened what if this had developed exactly in its own right exactly exactly as a fantasy it's grounded in desire 
It's mm. grounded in hope. Mm. It's, ra- it's grounded in romantic imagination. It's absolutely grounded in the sense of actually what could Africa be if Africa hadn't had 400 years of, you know, colonial oppression? And more than that, how would the people within that continent conduct themselves? Mm. How would they stand? How would they walk? How would they walk with pride with self-assertion with an understanding of their own place and position and power in the world audiences have responded really extraordinarily to the film you know black audiences white audiences because it sets out this idea of what does it feel like to be a liberated individual and we can talk about that racially, we can talk about that culturally, mm. we can even talk about that in gender terms, you know. Well, the, the women are so strong in this film. I mean, that's something that's noticeable about it as well, I think. One of the genius things about this is, you know, the Black Panther's character, he's great, he's charismatic and so on and so on. The women have no hesitation in bringing him down. Well, Every women single are really moment, funny as yeah. well. I mean, actually yeah. funny women. We are seeing more of them on screen, yeah. but they're still quite few and far between. And here, they have all the good lines, I think. Exactly. That's completely the case. Letitia Wright mm. as his, mm. you know, the younger sister she has the best lines but yeah, there's, great. there's a panoply of powerful mm. figures who are mm. funny who are emotionally complex it's sort of astonishing in that way in as much as here's a rejoinder if you want to me too in as much as yes mm-hmm. actually it turns out women can be you know significant characters in the film but also here's a rejoinder to Trump and Trump's dismissal of every African country as a quote unquote shithole country yeah. here is an assertion that look we can ignore that we can reach beyond that. We can imagine for ourselves who we are. We don't need to be put in our place by you or by anything else. We'll conjure this world. Yeah, and that world will be compelling. And that world will be one that actually we all want to be part of. Well, really. yeah. It's interesting because it's blackness not defined by whiteness. I mean, exactly. the cast is almost exclusively yeah. black. Yeah. Actually, I was slightly annoyed by the Martin Freeman characters. <laughs> What's he even doing there? It's so unnecessary. But I was thinking about this, and in terms of a kind of larger cultural moment, particularly in film, there's something about cultural appropriation, about the idea of whiteness taking the kind of, quote, best bits mm-hmm. of blackness, which is in Get Out, is, is the theme of that. It's mm-hmm. the kind of idea of stealing from a culture mm-hmm. and not acknowledging that. And I wondered, do you see Black Panther as being part of a trend in what we're seeing in the cinema? So Get Out, Moonlight. People have talked about the Moonlight effect. Is, is yeah. that real? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things. But I think one of the key things about generational sensibility, in fact, like when Ryan Coogler was making Black Panther, he had a cut of the film and he was trying to figure it out. Basically, he called up a bunch of his friends to come and see the film Mm -hmm. and you know there were black filmmakers black kind of videographers black artists Khalil Joseph who's a really significant interesting editor Barry Jenkins who made Moon Knight Mm -hmm. he called about half a dozen of them they all came around and basically gave him a critique of the film wow that's a generational moment Mm. when you have filmmakers and actually actors in front of the camera who share a sensibility and I think that sensibility is around a really personal approach to complexity you know moonlight i think is the most extraordinary film but one of the fated potential oscar films is get out possibly you might see we'll see what happens with black panther next year in the oscars as well and that'd be really interesting i think what's going on is that you have a a set of filmmakers and an audience who've grown up with an understanding that black culture black identity black creative expression is sophisticated is depth filled is able to play with contradiction so i don't separate moonlight from black panther but i also don't separate in fact beyonce 
and lemonade from that. I don't separate Kendrick from that. Or indeed, Marlon James winning the Booker Prize. So it's you part know. of a moment. Exactly. It's, you know, the moment is to say, look, if you want, you talk about it as a moonlight moment, you can also, if you want, talk about it as a Wakanda moment. What can our universe be? And is it something that's specifically African-American? I mean, the interesting thing about this film is that the cast is actually really global. Yeah. So, no, it's not specifically African-American. I think the connections, the levels of communication that you see in terms of the, the cast in Black Panther, mm. from Africa, from America, from the UK, you know, you see that also in, in terms of some of the inspiration for black creativity right now. It's mm -hmm. kind of drawing from all over. So artists and filmmakers and musicians here are working with people in America, are working with people in different parts of Africa. The simplest way to say that is that lines of communication are much more open right now because of the internet, but also because yeah. of a sort of willingness and desire to reach out, to make connection, to find kinship. And I think that's playing out in all sorts of ways. Mm. So there's this moment happening, but in your brilliant piece, you write that with hindsight, 2016 feels like a high watermark of black visibility, you know, and you go on to talk about Trump. I mean, that seems like a, a negative way of looking at it, to, to see that as a high watermark that suggests that the, the years that follow. The risk is that, you know, 2016, mm. you have Moonlight, we have Paul Beattie with the sellout. Equally, we have Hamilton on Broadway. Yeah. You have this moment when all the major prizes and awards are being awarded to people of colour. You also have Obama in the White House at that moment. So at that moment, you feel like, look, there's a wave, there's a transcendence going on. And at that time, maybe we thought, OK, look, it's going to go on like that. But it turns out, no, there's Trump. It turns out there's a real resistance to mm. that wave it turns out that's real it turns out you can have a president who makes racist statements in the white house it turns out you can have brexit here which at its philosophy is against otherness so actually it's not as straightforward as saying well look there's all this great stuff and it'll just continue to be that great yeah, that doesn't mean the great stuff doesn't stop but it makes it important to recognize that the ground doesn't just open up in front of it. It's not a straightforward process. Then actually that contestation continues and as mm. a consequence the work has to continue to be extraordinary. So it's a fight. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago we had the author Yard Jassy, the Ghanaian American author, on the podcast and she was saying this, she was saying that when we see progress for black people we see a backlash and you can look through history, American history particularly, yeah. and you see that as a cycle yeah. happening. That's definitely, definitely true. And then the question is, well, what do you do about that? You know, and the answer I would say is you make art. You know, you make art that resonates with people you make art that matters you make art in all forms of you know creativity that can speak with a complexity and a depth that people really respond to on a deeply emotional level so you make a blockbuster movie that's not superficial you make a blockbuster movie that's deeply personal to ryan coogler and it seems the entire cast and it turns out it then can be personal to many many more people for me that's the only response i can envisage that can articulate possibility, that can continue to reach towards a moment, that can continue to say, look, no, we don't have to be quiescent in the face of a Trump or something like that. We can make our voices heard and we can make our voices heard with complexity, with sophistication, with all of these things. Okay, thanks so much. Yeah. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Great, as always. 
That's it for this week. You can read Echo's piece, as well as India's interview with Paul Thomas Anderson, and all our film reviews and features at ft.com. Next week, we're going to be doing a special episode for International Women's Day, which will go out slightly earlier than usual on Thursday. I'll be talking to Laura Bates and Rennie Edo-Lodge about the state of feminism after Weinstein and asking, where are we now? And later in the episode, I'll be speaking to the best-selling French author, Leila Slamani, who won the pre-goncourt for her book, Lullaby. You can subscribe to everything else on any podcast app or listen online at ft.com. Please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do get in touch. You can email us at everythingelse at ft.com or you can leave a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. I've been Griselda Murray-Brown and our music is composed and produced by Fatum. 